0: October 19th, 1973, President Nixon is facing demands to turn over a crucial piece of evidence, the tapes of his meetings and phone calls about the Watergate break-in. Nixon resists. To do so would violate the president's need to have confidential conversations, he contends. So his White House floats a compromise. Nixon will release a summary of those conversations, and then a Democratic senator, 72-year-old John Stennis of Mississippi, would listen to the actual tapes and authenticate the White House version of what was said. It was an almost comical idea at the time. The septuagenarian Stennis was known to be half deaf And after special prosecutor Archibald Cox immediately rejected the idea, Nixon fired him the next day setting in motion the chain of events that led to his resignation. It's an episode that seems newly relevant this week after President Trump, in an apparent off-the-cuff remark, suggested he might have a, quote, respected source, unquote, read a transcript of his conversation with the president of Ukraine and authenticate that it was, as he put it, quote, a beautiful conversation. Is this the Stennis Compromise Redux? we'll discuss with the Nixon biographer on this episode of Buried Treasure.
1: Because people have got to know
2: whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a
1: crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and
2: the evidence tell me it is not.
1: I did not have sexual relations with that woman.
2: There will be
1: no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now, let's get on with the show. We are now joined by the aforementioned Nixon biographer, our old colleague, Evan Thomas. Uh, Evan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. So we were thinking about the uh, Stennis episode from Watergate after uh, Trump, when he was getting questioned on Sunday about releasing the transcript of his phone call with the ukrainian president suggested well we're looking at it maybe one option is to give it to a quote respected source they can look at it what i said was it was a great conversation and i immediately thought upon reading that of uh, john stennis and watergate
1: well i can i can see why i mean uh, this is nixon in battle nixon trying to twist and turn and avoid turning over the White House tapes. The special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, in the fall of 1973. Now, what the, a little bit of background: that Cox had subpoenaed these tapes, nine of them in particular, and a court of appeals, the federal court of appeals, had ruled, hey, to the White House, you got to turn them over. And Nixon in kind of Alaska—it wasn't Nixon actually, it was his chief of staff, Al Haig—came up with this idea of saying, well, instead of the tapes, let's make summaries of them and then have John Stennis review them. Now, there were a bunch of problems with this. John Stennis was a respected Southern conservative, a Democrat in the Senate, but a couple of problems. One is, he was deaf. So he
0: <laughs> Was he actually deaf or partially deaf? Uh, what, what? Uh, hard,
1: <laughs> very hard of hearing. And those tapes, I've those right. tapes. Okay. they are really hard to hear. So the idea that Stennis yep. could have actually heard them is problematic. The second thing is that Stennis's nickname as the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee was The Undertaker because he could bury controversial spending items so deep in the federal budget that nobody could dig them up. I mean, he was a great cover-up artist and known for it. Although he was respected, he really was not the most reliable source. And Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, said, No, I'm not going to do
2: this. What was the idea here, that Stennis was going to listen to these tapes and then compare them against the transcript? Because the Nixon White House, they only were going to turn over what they deemed relevant to Watergate?
1: Yes. yes. Now this, as it happened for you Watergate fans, you may remember that after this this didn't happen and the, and the prosecutor kept pushing for tapes to the White House and the court said you got to turn them over, the White House tried to buy more time by publishing their version, transcripts of the tapes, these blue books. And they mistranscribed them. They were famous for their expletive deleted. They try to cut out all of Nixon's profanities uh, and type in and said expletive deleted. That was one problem that ever got everybody's attention. But it was clear the language was crude. That was definitely a problem. But the bigger problem was the White House just heard the tapes their way and either misconstrued what was being said or left out a couple of significant tapes. Yeah. So it was a slow, slow death for Nixon. Finally, the Supreme Court says, no, 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 you got you have to turn over all the tapes. And in the last, the U.S. Supreme Court does, this is the next summer, and finally the White House at last turns over the so-called smoking gun tape when you can hear the president basically trying to order the FBI to use the CIA to cover up, um, um, cover up the wrongdoing. So, the tapes finally get Nixon at the end, but he's playing this delaying game through transcripts, through John Stennis, anything he can do yeah. to turn over the actual tapes.
2: So, when I, Evan, when I was reading about the Stennis Compromise, first of all, as you pointed out, it was Haig and some of the other White House aides who went to Nixon with this. It didn't sound like Nixon loved the idea to start with, but then he saw an opportunity to use this compromise to try to wiggle out of the whole thing by saying, okay, well, We'll do this, and then we'll turn whatever send us a test to. We'll turn that over. But then that's it. Cox can't have anything else. He can't ask for any more tapes or notes or memoranda. And that's right. when Cox right. said, no, I'm not doing this. Right.
1: Right. Because Cox was on a fishing expedition, and he wanted not just actually tapes. He wanted all sorts of financial records. They were looking into the scope of it had widened, and they'd found that Nixon— were spending a lot of money on fixing up Camp David and his B.B. Rebozo place down in Florida. And he had backdated, uh, or his lawyers had backdated, a donation of papers in order to get a tax benefit. I mean, there was some personal, questionable personal financial activity that they were looking for beyond the actual tapes. You know, Archibald Cox... Was a liberal Democrat and a Kennedy. And Nixon was not wrong about this. Archibald Cox was out the go.
2: Yeah, you know, it's so yeah. funny. I mean, bringing it yeah. back to the Trump comparison, because there are all these echoes. I gather Nixon said that Cox was a fanatic and he was ranting about the fact that some of the Kennedys, the Kennedy family members, went to Cox's swearing in and yeah. he was obsessed with that.
1: Cox had been a speech, head of speech writing in the Kennedy, the John F. Kennedy campaign. In 1960. He was a Kennedy Democrat. And as, as Nixon had no correctly noted, when Cox was sworn in, there were always Kennedy aides there. Was Cox conspiring with the Kennedys? I, you know, probably not. But half of the staff had worked for Kennedy, and they were liberal Democrats. And they were, you know, Cox was a kind of salty old New Englander. And I remember talking to one of his uh, prosecutors, uh, Richard Benveniste. Who said you know it's just not true wasn't a witch hunt cox would always say to us but is it fair you know all we're doing words, is what's it fair and I, you know i'm sure that's true but the staff of that office was out to get nixon 12 sure. angry Demo- would, 12 Chap- angry democrats yeah they were
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Chap- angry San- democrats exactly <laughs> yeah. but it just seems right. to me evan that The whole Stennis compromise to the release of the smoking gun tape is a reminder that at the end of the day, it's the actual evidence, it's the actual words that are spoken that make the difference. I mean, you can a a clever lawyer can sort of paper over any conversation to make it seem palatable and not criminal. But then when you actually hear the words, when you actually see the words, the devil's in the details. And, you know, as as we're watching this Trump-Ukraine story unfold, it seems to me that the fact that we know there's an actual transcript, a document with the words that were said. It's hard for me to see how this can play out other than at the end of the day, we get to read the document, read and and maybe even hear what it is Trump said to Zelensky, the uh, president of Ukraine.
1: That's all true, Mike, but Nixon looks like a law abiding citizen compared to Trump. I mean, Trump is just brazen and even more brazen than Richard Nixon. Nixon, at the end of the day, you have to remember, he does, at the end of the day, obey the process. He does turn over the tapes. Uh, when the Supreme Court says, you've got to turn over the tapes, he does. And that's, that's the end of him. He's out. Maybe Trump would do that, but Trump's level of complete disregard for constitutional systems, legal systems, you name it, pretty far out there. And, you know, we'll see. It, it's a, it is a test of the rule of law. I don't know how outrageous is Donald Trump or the people around yeah. him.
0: Yeah, just a couple of sort of interesting side notes to this. The conversation with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, in which Trump apparently, because he's already confirmed this, you know, pressed the Ukrainian president to investigate the son of his political rival and potential opponent next year, Joe Biden, it took place on July 25th. Now, it was the day after Mueller had testified before judiciary in a hearing that, you know, a lot of people thought was really the death knell for impeachment. The fact that Mueller seemed a bit befuddled himself, wasn't terribly forceful, the Democrats didn't really pick up much traction on it. So it's as though Trump was emboldened. Maybe he didn't need to be emboldened, but the juxtaposition of, you know, the Democrats flopping and then the very next day doing something that's arguably more outrageous than anything that was in the Mueller report is pretty striking.
1: It is, and maybe I haven't followed this closely closely enough, but Trump's attitude, I'd be surprised, I'm a little bit surprised that Trump isn't just turning over the transcripts because his attitude has been so, you know, come and get me. The people are with me. And the legalities of this be damned. We can just stonewall it, resist it. The people are with me to hell with it. Now, maybe this fire will eventually consume him, but his attitude sure has been to hell with it.
2: As we uh, record this today, there are stories that started to appear in the press about how the White House is considering releasing the transcript. So we'll see if they actually do that.
0: I should point out, Danny, that uh, Lindsey Graham just did a podcast with you, Hewitt, in which he apparently said something along those lines. In the next few days, you'll be hearing more, you'll be seeing more about that phone call. So whether that's the actual transcript or it's some summary of the transcript, you know, we'll have to wait and see, but it does suggest that they're inclined to try to release something that might tamp this down.
2: But let's just talk about some of the parallels again, because that's what fascinates me. Because it seems like Nixon at his worst and Trump, you know, in his worst moments, they're both driven by that, you know, that deep paranoia and wanting to, to either get revenge on their political enemies or preemptively bring them down. And you know, Watergate. So in in the case of Trump, they clearly see Biden or have seen Biden for some time now as their biggest threat in the 2020 campaign. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with their political judgment, but they've been saying that, telegraphing it. And then if you go back to Watergate, right, that was about preemptively going after their political rivals. Was it more musky than McGovern? They, they didn't fear McGovern as much, right?
1: Right, right. They. I mean, one of the things that's ridiculous about Watergate, or tragic, depending on your point of view, is that when the plumbers broke into the Watergate in June of 1972, is that right? Uh, 1972. Nixon was ahead of any Democrat by about 30 points. He couldn't have lost that election if he'd stripped naked and run down Pennsylvania Avenue. I mean, he was... There's just no way he was going what, to lose. What if he shot somebody he on, on Fifth Avenue? Right. Exactly. Practically. I mean, <laughs> the point was, there was no way he could have lost that election because the Democrats, this is familiar, were so ham-fisted and too far to the left, actually. And so Nixon was going to win in a walk. It's just a question of how big a walk. And so going after, you know, Breaking campaign laws and breaking into the, into the Watergate was completely unnecessary. And after they caught them, he could have easily have said, Hey, those guys are guilty. They were working for me. And he still would have survived, partly because he didn't actually know about the break in. Nixon did not know about the break in. It was his underlings. Nixon set an atmosphere that made all that possible, but he himself did not know about the break in. He may have known about some other stuff, but not, not about the break in. In any case, Nixon could have survived no matter who he was running against. Now, your point, it's true. I guess Carl Bernstein likes to talk about this. They did their best to undermine Muskie because they thought he was a bigger threat than McGovern. I guess that's true, but Muskie wasn't going to win either. You know, it was just at that time that Nixon had had a pretty, actually a pretty good first term and, uh, you know, had been to China and uh, he was eventually finally ending the Vietnam war and they done a bunch of stuff domestically and, country was kind of tired of the left. And he was, you know, he won, as it was, he won in the second largest landslide in history in 1972. So Watergate was an unnecessary self-inflicted wound. This is, Trump actually does have to be afraid of Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, You know, uh, Joe Biden may not be a good candidate, but Trump is at 40, you know, Nixon was at 80% of the polls or 70% of the polls. Trump was at 38%. And he, 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 you know, Trump has more to lose.
0: And by the way, Trump, you know, comments that Trump apparently just made a little while ago about his phone call with Zelensky in which he concedes again that they did talk about corruption with the Ukrainian president and linking it to the aid, the military aid package that he was holding up. It's very important to talk about corruption. These are Trump's words. If you don't talk about corruption, why would you give money to a country that you think is corrupt? Um, that's an implicit concession It seems to me that he was holding up the money, uh, which would make the phone call even more damning if the corruption concerns on Trump's part were all about getting dirt on Hunter Biden. And here he's conceding that the money was held up until the Ukrainian president agreed to do what he wanted. It seems to me this goes beyond just pressuring the Ukrainian president to do his bidding for political purposes. He's actually extorting the president of Ukraine to do so.
2: Yeah.
1: The the difference is, the thing though is, does the public really care about the Ukraine? I mean, if Trump has successfully lowered the bar, that he's sort of banking on people just not caring whether it's true or not. I mean, that's why I said I'm surprised he hasn't already released a transcript, because even though it's not legal, sort of, who cares? And Trump so so consistently flouted the rule of law that, you know, just keep on doing
2: it. Yeah, it's a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that I think is a strong contrast between Trump and Nixon is the, the extent to which Trump just goes out there and kind of brazenly says, yeah, <laughs> I did these, and it, right. I did these things right. and it's good that I did them. But also I think part of the reason, and this is in Watergate and that period can inform what we're going through now as well. One of the reasons that the public, I think, doesn't care that much is because everything is completely polarized and politicized and you have Democrats wailing about this and almost no Republicans. Back during Watergate, it took time, but eventually, you know, you had Republicans of conscience who spoke out about Nixon. So I guess the public will care more if there's a more of a bipartisan response to what's going on right now.
1: Absolutely. I mean, let's see where... Uh, they just don't. I, I mean, I you know which Republicans are going to step out there. I mean, Lindsey Graham. I you know he hasn't he hasn't been going in that direction. No, but uh, you know, I well, Mitt Romney
0: sort of did, right? He said if if these are, reports are true, it would be troubling in the extreme.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I just as Danny was saying, we're so polarized now that it's just if it, you know back in nineteen seventy three four. There were such things as moderate Republicans, that the leading Republican on the Senate Watergate committee was Howard Baker, who was a moderate Republican. Now, he did carry the White House water for a while, but he wasn't he just wasn't hard over. And Lowell Waker was a was a liberal Republican. They were there. They were just Washington was different.
2: On Howard Baker, just a little bit of uh, Watergate trivia. We had our old uh, friend and colleague on, uh, I guess not on the podcast, but on a, a different Yahoo News show, John Darman, who had written a piece for us about some of that history. And when Howard Baker uttered the famous line, what did the president know and when did he know it? It took on far more kind of ominous meaning years later. When he said it, He apparently didn't really – that was the time when he was carrying Nixon's water.
1: Yeah, 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 right, right. So I get that, and I know there was in the initial stages of the investigation in Nixon, it was pretty partisan on both sides. But as, as I think you said, in time, Republicans did came over, and that was more possible in the Washington of 1974 than it is or appears to be in the Washington of 2019.
0: I'll uh, throw out another uh, analogy that is just worth thinking about as we process how the uh, Ukraine story is going to unfold. Nixon's insurance policy against impeachment um, had been Spiro Agnew, right? Nobody wanted Spiro Agnew to become president, and um, even Republicans were not (laughs) excited about the idea. But then Agnew in October of... 73 is right about the same time that this is unfolding. Isn't that when he is um, indicted and then forced to resign? So Nixon loses his insurance policy with Spiro Agnew, and that made his political survival all the more precarious during the Watergate controversy. Now here, if Trump and you know actually does get impeached and the evidence is really damning and uh, we do have essentially a criminal conspiracy of extorting the Ukrainian president by holding up this military aid unless they do what the uh, Trump folks want and Trump is convicted, then Mike Pence becomes president. But you throw in the fact that Pence met with the Ukrainian president in Poland just in September, (laughs) raised the corruption issue, you know, would presumably have been aware of all the, uh, what the real concerns of Trump and Rudy Giuliani are. It makes him a potential co-conspirator to, you know, if this is an impeachable offense, and you wonder, so how does that play out as politically problematic as it would be to impeach and convict and remove Trump? You can't do both of them because then Nancy Pelosi becomes president. (laughs)
1: Right. Well, of course, the Democrats would love that, but that would freeze the Republicans in their place. That's true. Yeah. Nixon, that would never uh, fly. When, when Agnew went down, it was a General Ford, and, and Congress— General Ford was a moderate Republican that Democrats and Republicans both uh, liked. That would not be—if if, if the choice is either a tarred Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi, that's, that ain't Gerald Ford.
2: Well, I think um, right. John Stennis was uh, president pro Tempore of the Senate, so he would have been in line for the presidency. And you know who is oh, now? Oh, that's right. Who is now? Chuck Grassley, so we could have President Chuck Grassley. Well, wait a second. Is it
0: still? Is it still the President Pro Tem who becomes president after the? Um,
2: do they? That's uh, what I don't know. Do they? I mean, no. I mean, the, the Speaker of the House is third in line, but when it's from the same party, do they jump over? To the president pro tem? I don't know. Well,
0: the Constitution doesn't doesn't speak to political parties. So I think it would be close. Well, look, the bottom line is I think there's going to be no end to the Watergate analogies in the um, weeks and months to come. (laughs) So we will have plenty of opportunity to revisit all of these issues on buried treasures in the weeks to come. Evan Thomas, author of Being Nixon, is our go-to guy for all of that. So, Evan, <laughs> thanks for joining us Great once again. Great to talk to
2: you guys. <laughs> thanks, Evan. Thanks. Thank you, guys. So after recording this episode, we went back and we looked to see who would be second in line to succeed the president if the president was impeached. First, obviously, is the vice president. And second is the House Speaker. So Isakoff was right – That Nancy Pelosi would become president of the United States if both Donald Trump and Mike Pence were removed from office. But I will add that that is not the way it was in the 19th century. Back then, it did go directly from the president to the vice president to the Senate's president pro tem, who would be Chuck Grassley. Thanks to journalist and historian Evan Thomas for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. Talk to you soon.